Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. That is coming up to two minutes past four o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett here with you until six this evening. Today... Dinner with Donald, Bishop George Browning, the president of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, were giving his opinions on what Scott Morrison will have to think about if he goes to the US and has dinner with Donald. A recording of a talk at the Unitarian Church at the 26th of July celebrations for the Cuban Revolution talking about the difference between Cuban aid and Australian aid in the Pacific. A report back from the IPAN conference. This is the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network Conference, which was held in Darwin over the weekend. I'll be speaking to one of the organisers, Bevan Ramston. An update on trade wars with Linus Corporation, the impacts on that company and the people in the area of Kwantan with environmental activist Lee Tan and a very short talk by Jack Verdon from Friends of Public Housing Victoria. He was speaking at a recent housing conference. Then calls for action re-human rights abuses in the Philippines with Peter Murphy. The, The voices are getting louder and louder. But first... Mr. Kevin Healy, and it's been another one of his weeks. A weak Jane Lister went after modestly declaring himself the least racist person in the whole world. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, fingered the real racist, the real cause of white supremacists running around murdering scores of people. Least racist, yet copping a bit of flack for ordering those non-white women, elected members of Congress, to go back to the rat-infested, disastrously governed holes they came from. In truth, a refreshing awareness of the state of the US of, seeing that's where they came from, Donald delivered the perfect rejoinder. Afro-American people have never been so happy with a USR big supremo, he announced with that usual narcissistic modesty. A vox pop of Afro-Americans confirmed Donald's point. We have to be happy with a big supremo who is so open about his rampant racism, doesn't bother to cover it up, concedes we are poverty-stricken and destitute, live in rat-infested halls, even if he says that's our own fault. And just a bit of bad luck for poor Donald, and I'll come back to that, but after he proved he wasn't a racist, not only by telling us he wasn't, not only wasn't, but the least racist person in the whole world, he then fingered the real racism in the US of by declaring this black Baltimore poly was racist. Racist Elijah Cummings, the Don ripped, and what more proof do we need? He doesn't need to elaborate, he's the big supremo. Racist Elijah's district is a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess where no human being would want to live. And he's probably correct, because most, if not all of them, wouldn't want to live there if they had a choice. But the bit of bad luck, 
It turned out the landlord of most of these disgusting rat and rodent infested messes is Donald's very own Middle East peace envoy and very own son-in-law, Jared Kuchno Redcuts. Not only keeping the destitute destitute in Baltimore and goodness knows where else across the US of, but in his important diplomatic role, for which he is so well qualified, he is also ensuring the Palestinian non-state non-people are also kept destitute, justice served for their evil terrorism, and making sure they continue to become even more destitute. We await Donald's tweet praising Jared's charity toward the Baltimore destitute, and his charity would be even more effective if it wasn't for their racist Afro-American representative. Uh, Yes, why is the black congressman racist, Donald? He attacked me. Me, the most popular big supremo with darkies, uh, sorry, with the Afro-American people ever, ever. Yes, why would he do that? Because I pointed out how he's created a rat-infested hole. You've been to see it, no doubt. No, but Jared told me he's such a sensitive soul. Why, when they can't afford the rent, and sadly many of them can't, just won't get off their black asses. He just hates having to throw them out on the rat-infested streets. He's the most sensitive soul ever, Uh, apart from me. And that sensitivity shone after the latest mass slaughter by a white supremacist, the slaughter down to mental health and hatred and nothing, nothing Donald pointed out to do with the gun. The everyone has a right to one or twenty innocent, much maligned gun. But having said that, Donald declared that given the US of norm of mass gun slaughter, he had done so much to prevent it, and just a touch unfortunate, he didn't tell us what. Now to an area where it's for our own good that we must not know. In the no need to comment department, see there's been this meeting of minds from countries like the US of and Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country sharing their information from spying on dangerous commies. Intelligence, they call it. Well, share some of it, because can you really trust the others? But a meeting with a title including intelligence, and who's our true blue Aussie representative? Yes, the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Overseeing Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer. Sure, sure, the possibilities for a smart line here are almost endless, but really, no need to comment. Other than can't help myself, no matter how dumb the other intelligence participants may have been, how embarrassing for all true blue Aussies that they may have thought that skull and that excuse for a brain and that spillage of drawling dribble are representative of all of us. I hadn't realised they were a nation of zombies. Imagine the depth of his contributions, but then it is, it is intelligence that leads us into wars on the coattails of the US of, like the blatant lies, or sorry, misinterpretation of intelligence. The US of told the UN of the US of the UN of the world about evil Iraq bulging with weapons of mass destruction, nuclear warheads on every corner, and preparing to invade the whole world. So on that score, Constable Duffer would have been in his element.
Perhaps it was to check whether we are all Constable Duffers, which led two US of major warmongers to visit Trublewazi at the weekend to declare how important is our relationship, accompanied by nodding approval from our very own USO files, sycophants. The Secretary for US of World State, Mike Pompeo or else, said that relationship was unbreakable and it will remain unbreakable as long as you do what we tell you, which includes pointing a few US of weapons of mass destruction at evil China, which alongside that US of territory pine gap and US of train killers in US of Darwin should work wonders for Trublawazi security. And Mike said the US of could now plant all these missiles because it's a it's thirty or so year old deal with evil Russia no longer applied. And why not, Mike? Because we tore up the treaty that said we couldn't. Uh, like you tore up the treaty with evil Iran, imposed and pleased a worldwide economic boycott, then blamed evil Iran for uh, objecting a bit. Speaking of evil Iran, back to that unbreakable bit. I'm sure we can rely on our old friend True Blawazi. Still here, hope, still here, hope no one thinks there could be any truth in these corruption and ripping off accusations against the Crook Casino. Why, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse's scion Jamie Puker would be down like a ton of on anyone in his empire who did anything wrong. So it was a relief that our other lord, this one still with us, Lord Rupert of Wapping, through his Wapping sin, fingered the real crook. Socialist Party, Big State Supremo, the pejorative Dan. See, the alleged corruption and ripping off were exposed by the Spencer Street Fairfax no longer either, media opposition. So Lord Rupert came up with his own expose a few days after the story broke. P1 sensation. Jamie Puker and his crook casino are innocent. The big, big criminal is the pejorative Dan. It turns out that one night a few years ago at some function somewhere, Dan, bad, bad, pejorative Dan, shook hands with a Chinese business person he was introduced to, and that person, that business person, has been mentioned in the latest Crook Casino allegations. And it gets worse and more heinous. Also, some other Chinese person named once gave advice to some socialist poly or other, and therefore the whole corruption and ripping off allegations are down to bad, bad Dan and these dreadful state socialists that people keep re-electing, despite Lord Rupert's daily attempts to expose just how dangerous and irresponsible they are. So if we were thinking there might be some truth in the allegations, as if, well, none of it is to do with or should reflect on the Crook Casino or Jamie. Lord Rupert's story, we can say story, because fiction is always a story, Lord Rupert's story didn't get round to mentioning the caring business class government in Canberra, which the other lot story says is the government implicated in the allegations. But this shows Lord Rupert's sense of justice and balance. He wouldn't dream of being caught up in false accusations, expose the real culprit, bad, bad pejorative Dan. Back to that welcome visit by our US of warmongering friends, and doesn't their sincerity shine along with their gentility despite being self-appointed guardians of world peace, 
the world buffer against the bad guys, and there's just so many bad guys, back to train killing and dislocation and Constable Duffer and intelligence. Constable Duffer did tell us, truly was, he had utilised the sink the boats bit of concentration camps razor wire and, by yet again turning around a boatload of Sri Lankan no proper papers, queue jumping illegal boat people. But we can be sure our train killers marauding the high seas would have undertaken all the protocols to assess if any of these people risking their lives were refugees fleeing persecution. As a country constable duffer and his big supremo and sink the boat's predecessor scuttled them more less son keeps telling us, keep telling us, which treats these no proper papers lots with compassion and humanity in extension of their commitment to the dear baby Jesus. We would not just send them back to the persecution and torture they are escaping. Although it seems yet again this boatload contained not one genuine asylum seeker, just selfish, selfish people attempting to take advantage of our goodness, our compassion and humanity. Then again, given how we treat people who are accepted as refugees, turning them around may be more compassionate. Finally, Wonder if the bad, bad pejorative Dan has ever shaken hands with a people smuggler. Yeah, I reckon he has. It's all his fault. He's behind all this. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And he'll be back next week. I think it was last week he had a day off. It might have been the week before. But anyway, he'll be there riding his bike into the studio tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. Pouring a cup of tea and it's city limits until 10 o'clock. And here it's 15 minutes past 4 o'clock on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair with displays, books, garden pots, giftware and activities for children, along with talks, demonstrations, workshops, refreshments and door prizes. The Australian Plants Expo, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th of September, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Adults $5, concessions $4 and children free. Contact Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra via email on apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430 513 433 for more information. The Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. Public housing. In the last 15 to 20 years, there has been zero new public housing developed in Victoria, which seems to say to me that the only way you can get into a bit of public housing is to be an emergency accommodation request and you've got to wait for someone to move out of existing housing or die. That's the only way you can get in. How big's the problem? There's eight, there are 82,000 people currently on the public housing waiting list. Last night, 25,000 people were homeless in Victoria. This wasn't always the case, and maybe this also lends a, a sight to the future. In the 1950s, all the way through to 1996, in Australia, we were developing every year 8,000 to 14,000 new public housing dwellings. That's where we get our current stock from. 
So the will was there with the government in those days to do to do do the right thing. Um, however, we exist, Friends of Public Housing Victoria, and other organisations because it's really fallen into a hole. Currently, what's the government doing here in Victoria about public housing? Well, it's actually giving it away. They're currently transferring 14,000 properties from government management to giving it to community housing organisations as the gentleman over there somewhere said earlier on, this is not public housing, they're private organisations with their own corporate targets. So the government is essentially just getting out of the public housing business and it's actually exacerbating the problem by giving away 14,000 properties currently in plan. Now, obviously, people will end up living in these properties, but they won't be the most needy. They'll be picked from the middle of the public housing queue according to the rules that the uh, community housing organisations operate under. Quickly touch on the public housing renewal program. The government came up with a great idea. We've got all these walk-up estates, three storeys high, um, valuable real estate, inner-city um, areas. So they decided they would redevelop these and with an extra 10% of public housing accommodation on it in return for giving the rights to a development also develop towers of private apartments. And first three, three um, uh, estates have been announced in terms of redevelopment. We went from about 220 um, developments, uh, sorry, um, dwellings to about 300 odd and it slammed another 700 private for sale units on those blocks. So we're actually losing the land that we could possibly be developing new estates on. And not only that, but the new public housing that they were being developed was actually going to be run by community housing organisations, not by the government. Um, our lobbying was very successful there, and this is actually almost bizarre that they did it, but. About, about three days ago, they actually renamed, renamed the Public Housing Redevelopment Program to the Social Housing Redevelopment Program. It's no longer going to be public housing. Shock, horror. Okay, so who are these community housing organisations that the um, housing is going to? They have done an absolutely incredible job of siphoning every cent of Commonwealth and state government revenue to their own needs. So since 1996 there has been heaps of money going into social housing but it's been going to the community housing organisations. And how does that come, come about? Well it comes about because these guys have got money, they've got lobbyists, they've set up organisations such as the AHURI, Australian Housing Urban Institute Research fancy names, they come out with fancy reports, reports all come out with a strategy in their favour. They pay universities to do studies for them. They run conferences, there's a conference, if you want to meet all these guys from community housing, they're at a conference in Darwin on August the 27th and if you've got $1,300 you can pay it at a conference fee. So we're talking about corporates, now these are rich guys and the really scary thing is it's now also been infiltrated by people from the financial services sector. So there's only one, one way that this is all going. 
Just a bit of a, a story about how public, uh, sorry, community housing treat their treat their people. Uh, lady, it's a true story. Lady out in Caroline Springs, living there with her son, two bedroom house. Son moves out. They found out about it. Okay, you're not entitled to an empty bedroom, and they shifted her from a two bedroom house in Caroline Springs to a boarding house, rooming house in Footscray studio apartment. Same rent, because it's always a percentage of your income, and no longer can her son or grandchildren come and visit and have a room. And not only that, but they also are very well renowned for just kicking people out as well. Hopefully we can talk, talk more, a bit more about this during questions, because I haven't got time to do it now. The next big step is, all I have to do is read the lobbying of the community housing groups to know what's going to happen next or what their reports are saying. So they've actually siphoned off all the public housing in the other states other than Victoria. We're the only state with any left. So there's nothing else to gain. So now, now they're going to get the government to borrow cheap money. Interest rates are down, and let's go and build all that public housing. But who's going to run it? I can predict who's going to run it. It'll be these people. So our lobbying, we will get ahead of the game and lobby against that. And that's going to be our battle over the next few years. And that was Jack Verdon speaking at a recent public housing meeting. He's from the Friends of Public Housing Victoria. And we wonder why we're in such a mess today with homelessness and people not being able to afford to rent properties. It's 22 minutes past four o'clock. Did you know volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesea? Whittlesea Community Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittleseacc.org.au to find out more. A 3CR supporter. As part of the 26 July celebrations of the Cuban Revolution, Sasha Gillis-Lukakis, a member of the Unitarian Church, Australian Cuba Friendship Society, spoke at the Unitarian Church in East Melbourne. The Pacific region has long been considered Australia's backyard. We are, after all, easily one of the most economically and politically powerful nations in this part of the world, which is largely composed of tiny, disparate island groups. These Pacific islands are blessed by beautiful natural phenomena, important ecological reserves, and if one knows where to look, bountiful resources, both on and offshore. However, these islands remain poor, economically dependent and developmentally backwards, with staggeringly high rates of health issues and domestic violence, low life expectancy, and in some countries, open and brutal conflict. Australia has had a brutal hand in perpetuating many of these situations, as we will soon find out, in order for some of us to benefit. And by some of us, I mean Australian corporations. 
However, the Pacific Islands and their people are quite rapidly taking to a fellow island nation, this one in the Caribbean, that is instead dedicated to improving conditions in the Pacific Islands. These activities are not designed to seek some ulterior motive, as some have claimed, but rather to ensure that Pacific people can enjoy greater access to education, healthcare and other essential human services. This island is Cuba. Today I will compare Australia's actions in the Pacific with those of Cuba, detailing Havana's extraordinary contribution to humanity in the Pacific and exposing Australia's cruel attempts to retain this part of the world as its turf. One of Cuba's most significant and indeed its largest presence in the Asia-Pacific region has been on the small island of East Timor, amongst the world's poorest countries and still recovering from its brutal occupation at the hands of Indonesia. In fact, following independence in 1999, rural medical facilities in East Timor were virtually non-existent. This was not helped by the World Bank's relentless attempts to force the new government to privatise its healthcare and education assets, and the tiny nation effectively lost $1 billion dollars to private companies as a result. Abandoned during its occupation, East Timor was once again left isolated and in desperate need of aid. This was where Cuba came in. Upon hearing of East Timor's plight at a regional conference in the early 2000s, Fidel Castro promised the East Timorese government as many doctors as was necessary to face the health crisis there. And so began Cuba's largest medical mission outside Latin America. Today, some 300 Cuban doctors on two-year medical missions service both rural and urban populations across East Timor. Additionally, over 1,000 East Timorese students have been sent to Cuba to study medicine for free and have since returned to their home country to bolster efforts there. Recently, a new hospital was constructed in Dili, East Timor's capital, with Cuban funding. And today, Cuban-trained East Timorese students are the backbone and lifeline of the country's fledgling public health care system. This program is significant in that it is a public sector to public sector endeavour, with no input from private sector organisations. This means that the Cuban personnel are paid the exact same wages as the East Timorese, avoiding the often detrimental development of a dual economy and the resentment of higher paid aid workers that so often accompany private NGOs. Moreover, the ethos applied by the Cuban trainers has meant that East Timorese medical staff are interested first and foremost in helping their home country, and the nation now has one of the highest doctor retention rates in the Asia-Pacific region. In fact, according to a national survey conducted in 2014, as much as 99% of East Timor's medical sector were interested first and foremost in staying in East Timor and in staying in the public sector in large part due to the ideals espoused by the Cubans. This can be compared with nations such as Fiji, where on average between 40 and 50% of graduate doctors leave their country annually to seek better opportunities elsewhere. Since the Cuban medical missions began in East Timor, child mortality rates have fallen from 172 deaths per 1,000 to just 55 deaths per 1,000 in 2013. Moreover, access to clean drinking water had increased to over 70% of the total population as a direct result of Cuban sanitation efforts in rural areas. So I do not exaggerate when I say that Cuba has been one of the single most significant factors contributing to human development in East Timor. Dr Monteiro, head of East Timor's Disease Control Program, a Cuban scholarship graduate herself and head of the East Timor Cuba Friendship Society, has said that the Cuban medical missions are about human values, not a matter of if you have more money to pay me, I'll treat you better. Moreover, she remarked that illiteracy in some provinces had been completely eradicated due to the efforts of Cuba's Yo Si Puedo Literacy campaign, which has also been used to great effect in Australia with our indigenous communities as well as in many other countries around the world. 
world. Clearly, East Timor is thankful for the selfless Cuban aid that has been given to them. And the achievements of the East Timorese since this time are something that Cuba should be rightfully proud of. Now, Australia's contribution to development in East Timor is another matter entirely. Where does one begin? We actively supported and concealed Indonesia's genocidal invasion of the island, in which over one-third of East Timor's population was massacred. Canberra was also instrumental in providing weaponry and intelligence to the Indonesian military during this period, and we even covered up the murder of five of our own journalists at the hands of Indonesian soldiers so as to save our relations with the Indonesian regime. And whilst these actions were shameful enough, Australia continued to betray East Timor well after its independence. Following a 1999 referendum in which almost the entire East Timorese population voted to leave Indonesia, the Indonesian military began a brutal crackdown of pro-independent supporters, and Australia decided to intervene militarily. We didn't stop the Indonesians. Rather, our military was sent straight to strategic locations that our government sought for itself after the fighting inevitably subsided, including the oil-rich Arafura Sea. We were also instrumental in lobbying the United Nations to keep Indonesia in charge of the transition to democracy period in East Timor. This essentially allowed the master to keep whipping the slave for some time. And when East Timor finally did achieve total independence in 2001, Australia then bullied the fledgling government into perhaps one of the most exploitative trade deals currently in existence. The Bayou Undan gas fields, which would have been an economic lifeline for East Timor and are in fact closer to East Timor than to Australia, were piped directly to Darwin and Australian corporations continued to hold exclusive rights over revenue from this resource. Our country has also illegally claimed half of the Greater Sunrise oil field, though the East Timorese have contested this for years. In fact, in 2006, during negotiations over this particular resource, it was revealed that our intelligence agency, ASIO, had been bugging the East Timorese government building so as to spy on their discussions. Clearly, Australia has had a great hand in ruining East Timor. Today, when walking the streets of Dili, East Timor's capital, it is common to see graffiti depicting Australian soldiers as kangaroos and crocodiles sucking East Timor's oil and blood out of a barrel. Some Australian tourists visiting have also been warned to conceal their identity, as in East Timor there is an almost unanimous consensus that Australia is full of thieves and criminals. And judging by what has transpired, it is difficult to challenge the East Timorese on this claim. Currently, Australia sends between 60 to $70 million in aid to East Timor each year, already a small amount by aid standards, though this number is likely to fall further as the Liberal government slashes aid spending. This is sickening and hypocritical, considering that on average we extract an estimated $5 billion each year in stolen wealth from East Timorese gas reserves, condemning them to poverty. So in a twisted way, East Timor has been forced to give us far more than we have ever given them. This is capitalism at its worst, and Australia has merely done what other Western nations do in their respective backyards. Canberra was so determined to maintain its economic control that it condemned an entire nation, an entire people, to massacre, rape, wanton destruction and theft of resources. Cuba, on the other hand, has once again proven that there is another way, a way in which nations can work together based upon respect and the principles of solidarity. Another nation that has been helped immeasurably by the Cubans is the Solomon Islands, once again a very poor country and once again very close to Australia. By 2008, after several years of violent unrest, the Solomon Islands were left with just one doctor per 10,000 people and poverty was endemic. 
Then that same year, two Cuban doctors arrived as a part of Havana's medical mission to the Solomon Islands. Cedric Alependava, then Undersecretary for Health, has since praised these individuals as a blessing to the people of the Solomons. Over the next few years, the number of Cuban personnel operating in the islands increased to 40, and that number has since increased further. In 2008 as well, 25 young Solomon Islander students were sent to Cuba to complete their subsidised medical scholarships. And by 2012, 90 such students had been fully trained, free of charge, and returned to their home islands, contributing to a commendable reduction in disease contraction and increasing life expectancy, as in East Timor. What was particularly impressive regarding the nature of Cuban aid to the Solomons was the specificity and appropriateness of the aid. The first two Cuban doctors to arrive in 2008 were an anaesthetic specialist and a physician, two areas of the Solomon Islands health sector that were severely understaffed at the time. So, Cuba has played not only a positive role in the Solomon Islands, but a vital one, as many communities in that country would still not have access to even the most basic medical assistance without the presence of Cuban medical missions. Australia, unsurprisingly, embarrassed itself with its behaviour in the Solomon Islands. You'll perhaps be most familiar with our involvement in the Regional Assistance Mission to the Solomon Islands, or RAMSI, which we spearheaded alongside New Zealand. This began in 2003 after years of horrific inter-island fighting known as the Tensions. After a deeply flawed peace agreement was signed in Townsville that Australia championed, the situation morphed into an islands-wide extortion racket, where pardoned militias were making millions of dollars off selling decommissioned weapons. This, unsurprisingly, reignited the conflict. In 2009, at the end of a long and costly operation, Australia left the Solomon Islands with a severely underfunded and understaffed police force, as well as an inexperienced political and legal infrastructure. However, the true nature of Australian involvement in the Solomon Islands reared its ugly head when the Howard administration demanded that Honiara embrace neoliberalism and privatisation, whilst giving preference to Australian corporate interests. In fact, the Australian Foreign Minister at the time was reported to have slammed his fists down in the Solomon Islands Parliament building while it was in session, threatening that no further aid would be given unless the Solomons did as Australia said. Mind you, Canberra had no legal right to demand this, but it went ahead regardless. Now, almost 10 years and $3 billion later, Honiara's sole hospital is in squalid condition, the nation's GDP is amongst the lowest on the planet, and the islands have been racked by no less than three major insurrections since Ramsey left the Solomon Islands. But Australian corporations and their unscrupulous local business allies in Honiara have certainly reaped the rewards forcing through several lucrative contracts with the desperate government. And the most recent and much publicised instance of Australian aid to the Solomon Islands, which saw Scott Morrison pledge improvements to infrastructure, will force cut funding cuts to vital um, health care and education initiatives in the islands. Some aid. Cuba's role in the Pacific has not been limited to the Solomon Islands and East Timor. In 2008, a Cuba Pacific Islands Forum saw representatives from Tuvalu, Tonga, Kiribati and several other states come together with Cuban officials in Havana to discuss issues of healthcare, development and education. And from this summit, further missions have grown. For example, in 2009, Kiribati sent 32 students to complete their subsidised medical scholarships in Cuba and one of its only four embassies is in fact Cuban. Tuvalu received much-needed improvements to its medical infrastructure with Cuban funding, and these two low-lying islands also collaborate with Havana on climate change research, an issue which affects all nations, but these vulnerable islands in particular. 
Additionally, Vanuatu shares a historic bond with Cuba, as Fidel Castro was an ardent supporter of the Nee Vanuatu independence movement that sought to free the islands from French colonial rule in the 1970s and 1980s. Several dozen students from Vanuatu have also completed their studies in Cuba. In each and every instance, it is clear that the Cubans are not doing this for some political motive. This is merely the selfless internationalism that drives their operations in Africa, in Asia and in Latin America, a desire to create a better world for those less fortunate. However, Cuban personnel and Cuban-trained Pacific students have come under fire from certain sectors of Pacific Island society. There are claims that the Cubans don't train these students adequately or that not enough is being done to address specific issues in the islands. But let's take a look at who specifically is making these claims because, believe me, you will be hard-pressed to find a negative or hostile testimony from a Pacific Islander that has actually been trained or treated by the Cubans. Rather, the vast majority of disgruntled Pacific Islanders hail from the region's wealthy medical elite, many of whom work in the private medical sector and have studied in places such as Fiji, a firm US ally, or in Hawaii, the United States itself. And these individuals make such accusations because they feel threatened by the Cuban medical programs, which have grown very popular in the Pacific Islands and they feel that their business is jeopardised by the free assistance. A similar phenomenon had occurred in Brazil, where Cuban doctors sent to rural areas such as the Amazon were not only harassed but racially abused by wealthy Brazilian medical practitioners. Cuban medical qualifications are some of the most widely recognised in the world, and not even the United States has questioned their legitimacy. There can be no questioning that the, that the quality of Cuban medical programs in the Pacific Islands is excellent. The research and PhDs I read to inform this speech also attest to the high standard of the Cuban personnel and their training programs. Australia's track record with the rest of the Pacific is less than stellar, to say the least. In 2009, one of the most senior officials of the Pacific Islands Forum publicly denounced Australia's constant attempts to bully smaller Pacific Islands into accepting free trade deals that benefit Australian corporate interests. This official, Roman Grinberg, was ousted from his position by Australia and New Zealand after he published an article detailing how Canberra and Wellington used tactics of coercion and bribery, as well as the cover of the IMF, to force their agenda on smaller Pacific islands. This is typical imperialist behaviour and isn't helped by the fact that together, Australia and New Zealand control almost the entire budget of the Pacific Islands Forum. This allowed Australia to maintain its military interventions in Tonga, Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands in the early 2000s, simultaneously forcing through neoliberal restructuring programs for these three countries. Local industries in these islands have since collapsed in the face of competition from Australian companies, and the resultant poverty and unemployment has forced many Pacific Islanders to come to Australia and New Zealand to work as cheap, underpaid labour on farms and in factories. Unsurprisingly, the governments of the Pacific Islands do not want to engage in these free trade deals and restructuring programs, but are unable to do anything else in the face of Australia's and New Zealand's domination of the region. Clearly, Australia believes that it can do as it wants. However, times are changing. Australia's thuggish behaviour has thrust many Pacific islands into the arms of China, which has initiated several development projects throughout the region. And whilst it remains to be seen how effective this aid will be, at the very least it provides an alternative to Canberra's bullying. 
Tuba has also expanded its educational and medical services in the Pacific Islands. And as we've seen from the examples of the Solomon Islands and East Timor, the missions there are constantly evolving to suit local needs. Cuban Aid to the Pacific Islands has been generous, cooperative, effective and internationalist. This proves perhaps one of the greatest achievements of Cuba's socialist revolution, and that is a commitment to solidarity and brotherhood amongst nations. Uh, this is all the more extraordinary considering that Cuba, with a low GDP itself and suffering under the illegal US economic blockade, has done so much for the Pacific Islands. It is also significant in that it has at least partially reduced and exposed the Pacific Islands' dependence on Australia. Cuban aid to the Pacific is everything Australia should be doing. And yet this is the fundamental difference between capitalism and socialism. Whereas Cuban internationalism has contributed to genuine human development with a great respect for local customs and an emphasis on education and community, Australia has plundered the Pacific Islands with little regard for the human and environmental impact it has had and will continue to have in this beautiful but troubled part of the world. Thank you. And that was Sasha Charles Lukakaskis speaking at the Unitarian Church on the occasion of the anniversary of the Cuban Revolution. That was on the 26th of July. The Unitarian Church is in Grey Street, East Melbourne, and the service is every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. And there's a speaker there every Sunday, and that speaker is recorded and played on 3CR for the Unitarian Program here at 3CR at 10.30 the following Saturday morning. So if you miss it at the church, you've got a second chance to hear it on 3CR the following Saturday at 10.30 for the program Seek Your Truth and Serve Humanity. It's coming up to 4.43. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash 
shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. The 2019 IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network National Conference, was held in Darwin over the past weekend with the theme, Australia at the Crossroads, Time for Independent Foreign Policy. With a number of topics addressed by a wide range of high-profile and international speakers. One was Bevan Ramsden, a New South Wales representative of IPAN, and I spoke with him yesterday morning for a summary and a highlight to the conference and where to next for IPAN. Bevan, it was a big undertaking for an NGO to hold a national conference in Darwin, especially at this time with a increase in US troops, the US base now firmly established with more to come and the proposed naval base near Darwin. A long preparation time? Yes, Jan. It's been going for some, more than six months, the preparation for it. We're, we have one person in, who is an IPAM, a committee member, who is able to help, but a lot of the work was done from Sydney and Newcastle and uh, Brisbane, and so doing it remotely is always more difficult. But we had a very successful conference with over 90 people, including Darwinians there, and people from Tasmania, Western Australia, South Australia, every state was represented at the conference. It was very... Um, enthusiastic conference. We had a, a protest out of, went, all went out there in the convoy to Robertson Barracks where the 2,500 US Marines are housed and we're able to go walk through the gates with hardly anyone there except a couple of them, uh, the military police and we're able to hold a protest meeting there and with lots of banners and speeches we attempted to give them the boot. We had a, a mounted boot with names of organisations around it we're going to give to the US commander or to the US Marines, but no one would take any gifts from us. We had to walk away with the boot, but we uh, did attempt to give them the boot, and we'll keep giving them the boot from time to time, I'm sure. Talk about some of the, the guest speakers on, on yes, the two we, days. We had um, Senator Jordan Steele John from the Greens. Now, we were very impressed by this young man in a wheelchair who uh, enumerated, I felt, the real feeling of IPAN, for independence, for peace, and he's going to manage his portfolio, so to speak, in the Greens, under the heading of Peace and Disarmament and Veteran Affairs. And I reckon he'll do a very good job. He certainly enumerates our ideas, and he'll be a good point of contact for us in the Greens, and maybe, therefore, a voice in, in Parliament is, is a senator. Also, uh, Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer, Griffiths University, Hank Rubuz from West Papua, and that, he helped to um, help us understand the struggle for independence in West Papua and the uh, way that the, the Indonesians have been treating and, and shooting people who protest there. They're actually in a minority because the Indonesians have, have migrated, uh, had an immigration program into West Papua so that the, the actual West Papuans are only about a third or a quarter, third of the population now, and they're still trying to get their independence and self de and, and determine their future. So that was pretty pretty important. And Vince Capitura from Macquarie talked about the U.S.-Australia alliance and how the U.S. gets behind the scenes and influences our leaders, our trade union leaders, our political leaders, in what's called the U.S. 
Australia Dialogue Group. They get the scenes and work on people. And of course, there was the good speaker from the, from the campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. That was Sir Wareham, and they had a report on their next stage of their program, try and get Australia to sign the Prohibition Treaty on Nuclear Weapons. Um, look, I could go on and on and on. There's so many good speakers there, um, including Warren Smith from the Maritime Union of Australia. And he spoke from a, a working-class perspective of how war affects working people and their own maritime members, the various wars, and how they, they see the importance of peace and justice being union business. And that's going to be a, a, a developing theme within IPAN and in the campaign in the next few years, I'm sure. We did pass a number of resolutions there. You might be interested, listeners might be interested in the, some of the resolutions of the past. For example, the conference urges the Australian government to reject pressures from the United States to send our ships to the Straits of Hormuz, which adds to the pressure by the US government to isolate Iran, isolate Iran and destroy its economy. We said, keep our ships at home. Australia must make its own foreign affairs policies and we reject any Australian involvement in a US war with Iran. We also express solidarity with the Warfies, the MUA and the Warfies, who are fighting a real big battle, like they did with Patrick's years ago, against DP World Container Terminal in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle, where they're attempting to oust the Warfies off the waterfront and replace them by their own labour. And that's a big campaign. And as MUA very solidly supports IPAN and the our peace initiatives, we want to support them too and that struggle to retain their jobs. We passed a resolution supporting the West Papuans for the struggle for independence. So an interesting one was initiated by a peace activist from New Zealand and it reads, the 2019 IPAN conference in Darwin urges that Australia abandon plans be a major weapons exporter and instead promotes Australia joining with New Zealand in disarmament and peacemaking together with all our regional geographical neighbours. The strong feeling at the about this export of weapons, you know, to Saudi Arabia where they're used in the war against the people of Yemen. And um, Chris Pine and others in the government have expressed the wish that Australia becomes one of the top ten exporters of weapons in the world, which is a terrible ambition. There's enough weapons in the world and war around the Middle East to be exporting weapons to the Middle East and promoting a war where we want to see some peace. And that's where some of the... And, of course, the, the, the main thrust was the ones about the US Marines in Darwin, and um, we went out to protest about them. Look, Jan, would you like to hear a bit from Shirley on one of the other initiatives from the conference? It's about a people's inquiry into the costs of war. We actually broadened it out, so... We're looking at holding a people's inquiry or community inquiry into the cost of the US-Australia military alliance on the people of Australia, the economy, the environment and our sovereignty. And it has broadened out. Uh, initially, it was, it was on the, the cost, financial costs of, of war, of our involvement with US wars, but we've decided that this is, you know, th this has shifted now to a far broader costs on Australian people and that's the cost of the US-Australian military alliance. So some of the issues in that we will be looking at, um, it'll be a, a, an inquiry that will be launched shortly. It will involve a large 
cross-section of the population and some of the issues we're looking at is the the costs of to Australian people and uh, the interoperability with the military-industrial complex. So we've got a lot of multinational corporations that are now operating out of Australia. Many of them are not paying any taxes or very little tax, like Lockheed Martin, for instance, Raytheon, BAE Systems, and many more. What are the costs of the alliance on our national security and democratic rights and the costs of war on the environment and a global peace and justice? So it's a fairly broad inquiry and to, to, um, to investigate the impact of US-Australia alliance on people's lives, the environment, sovereignty, and its objective to widen and deepen our movement here in Australia for peace and independence. And it's an inquiry that will probably take, we haven't set a, a time limit on it, but it will certainly go on for possibly two years. Yeah, here's Bevan. Jan, I think our listeners ought to know about this because it's news today and they may have caught up on the ABC or the newspapers about it, but the Australian and US governments have had a high-level meeting in Sydney called the OSMIN Conference, uh, which is not only just the top, it's all these defence officials down at lower levels all get together once every two years for these um, conferences which are allegedly held under the auspices of the Australian-US alliance. But Pompeo, which is uh, Trump's right-hand man, made a uh, it's been floating the idea at this, con- this conference of Australia hosting their missiles in the Northern Territory. Now, that's in addition, as you know, to all the, the US military bases we already have in Australia, with Pine Gap, Northwest Cape, they now 2,500 Marines in Darwin. They're talking about a naval base at Glide Point, 40 kilometres out of Darwin, a US naval base. Now they're talking about floating the idea of US missiles in Australia. This is making Australia just a fortress for them. They're just using us and our land to create a, a southern military base for a war against China because the uh, headlines in the Australian is US is asking Australia to join them in a battle against China. Now, China doesn't threaten us. They're a major trading partner. What interests have we got in having a battle with China? There's a clear example you know, of where... The U.S. alliance and Australia, Australia's interests in the U.S. alliance differ quite, quite markedly from the United States' interests. If they have a problem with China, do we have to have one? I mean, we would like to live in peace with the people in our region, and these bases are drawing us inevitably into a stoush. And it's not a stoush we want to have. It's going to work badly for the Australian people, our economy, and for jobs in, the, in Australia too. We need to put a very all peace-loving people who listen to 3CR, who are in IPAM, and organisations like CICD, the program like we need to put a stopper on this one. No US missiles in Australia. It must not be allowed. And I'm quite sure that Professor Lisa Natividad from Guam filled you in on what it's like to have multiple US bases on your country. Absolutely. They've lived under the thumb of the US there for some years. And she spoke very powerfully about that at the conference. And uh, we have no doubt about the effect of US um, living on your territory and the impact. But um, well, we just had a huge war rehearsal, actually, off the coast of Queensland, in amongst the Great Barrier Reef of all places. 
where they're practicing for a war with China, 34,000 US and Australian troops, 200 planes and 60 ships were involved in that war exercise, which just completed two weeks ago. It's called the Talisman Paper. And in their documentation, it was quite clear they were practicing for a war against China. Now, the United States is clearly just embroiling our country in yet the plans for yet another disastrous war in Asia. And uh, all peace-loving people have to stand up at this time and say no. And you had two guests there at the conference. One was from the Northern Territory Environment Centre and the other from Friends of the Earth. What were they saying about the environmental costs of having these troops and these issues in Northern Territory? Well, they were mentioning the pollution effects of the CFAS, uh, for example, the, the uh, contaminant that the military use or the Air Force use, the impacts upon that and the to- toxic effects of that, which they're very much opposed to, and um, the other environmental impacts like where they do the weapons training and so on. They, they do actually bombing runs in Northern Territory. They have a bombing range at Delamere and they put up false houses and they bomb them and all the ordnance and stuff is left there and um, yeah they did speak quite uh, effectively about the contamination caused by the military up in the territory. And you had Aboriginal representatives there as well? We did, this is probably the first IPAN conference where we've had Aboriginal representatives participating in the conference, in fact taking a lead, lead at the start in welcoming us and talking about their life and their expectations, and that included um, a union leader here, a Torres Strait Islander union leader, Thomas Mayer, who made a, a recording for the conference. Some of us met him in person. Very impressive young man who clearly not only has the interests of the union at heart, but understands literally the struggle of his own people, the importance of the Uluru statement and um, parliamentary voice, he also spoke uh, passionately about the need for unions involved in the peace movement. Yeah, so we had some good Indigenous input into this conference. Dr Margie Beavis, did she talk about the health consequences of all this? I'm glad you raised that one, because Margie was just pouring out statistics about the cost of, of war. It would be very useful in our campaign, the People's Inquiry. But she was good at, for example, saying, look, if $20 billion wasn't spent in this military, arming up the military to work with the United States. If $20 billion wasn't spent, what could we do with it? And you had a whole list of how many hospitals, how many more teachers, how many more nurses. Now, the value to the community that could be obtained by not wasting this money on gearing up for the military work with the United States. You had a video link with John Pilger. What was his input? Well, he was saying to the conference that China is no threat to Australia, that the reactionary Australian politicians and the pro-Yank people are making all this up. They're making it Australians feel as though we're under a threat from China when we're not. He was also very damning of Professor Hugh White's statement. He's one of the defence strategists. They say he helped to write the last White defence paper, the paper of defence. But he's been floating the idea of nuclear weapons for Australia. John Pilger said he should be put out the grass. What a ridiculous idea to uh, set yourself up to be annihilated by having nuclear weapons on your soil. All in all, a very successful conference? 
I think so, and uh, we hope the ripples go out from the conference. We, for the first time, well, in a way, the first time, we've got a lot of local media coverage, and ABC covered it very well and put it on 24, in the news channel, which goes around Australia, especially the protest out at Robertson Barracks. So, um, yeah, we broke through a bit on the media this time, which was a step forward. And I'd imagine a number of the people at the conference will be travelling to Alice Springs to hear the second Yummy Lester Memorial Address? Well, they, they are. Yeah, the top hand group in, in Alice Springs is putting on that function, and I, certainly I won't be able to myself, but I'm hoping people are able to, to um, go out there, and you're able to cover some of it too, if Jonathan gives you some, some of the, uh, the uh, speeches and so on that are being made out there. Great. All right. Thank you so much, Matt Bevan, and back to whatever you're doing. Press releases and so on. Yeah, okay. Thank you for the interview. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Bevan Ramsden from IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australian Network. And you heard also a little of Shirley Winton from the same organisation who were sort of recovering on Monday morning after a very busy three days in Darwin with the National Conference and as Bevan said right at the end in Alice Springs on the 9th, that's Friday there is a second Yemi Lester Memorial Lecture so hopefully we'll be able to get some voices from that and some more voices from the the conference that was held over those three days on the program in the coming weeks if we can work all that one out. It's coming up to three minutes past five o'clock. You could be listening on your radio, 8.55am the old way, digital 3CR, or you could be listening on your computer on 3cr.org.au, or you could be putting it away for listening maybe tomorrow, the next day, the day after, by logging into podcasts for Tuesday Home Time, Not only Tuesday Home Time, but many, many programs here on 3CR are now podcast. Red Alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. 
the impact of the attempts by the Trump administration to impede the rise of China as the dominant world power through trade wars has impacts worldwide. One we're concerned about today is Kwantung in eastern Malaysia, located near the mouth of the Kwantung River and facing the South China Sea, where residents are concerned about the impacts of the Linus rare earth processing plant. The company is globally the second largest supplier of rare earths and recent trade wars have upped the stakes in the rare earth market. Linus is the only significant rare earth miner processing outside China and plans to boost capacity in light of the trade wars. I'm speaking with Lee Tan, who is an environmental consultant whose family hometown is in Kwantung. Firstly, the trade wars relating to Linus. Are there both pluses and minuses? Yeah, Linus is taking advantage of the US-China trade war to try and um, promote a better supply chain as one that's being away from China and all that sort of stuff. It is actually quite ironic because China is one of um, Linus' major customers. And I think because of what Linus has done, and trying to secure the links with U.S., China has stopped buying rare from Linus. And that's actually caused a little bit of a financial pain in Linus. But the problem is the radioactive waste that this has left behind in Malaysia is still a problem. In fact, not only it's left behind, but it is still generating in Malaysia. And it has nowhere to go. And uh, Linus hasn't got any safe plan to manage that waste. Just to go back to the the ban, who are they going to sell it to if they can't sell it to China? Uh, their, their traditional customers are Japan and China. So, you know, they're targeting Japan. Well, Japan's always been its customer and also its major uh, lender. So it is probably looking at U.S. customers at the moment, but Linus rare earth oxides are not actually to the pure form, which can be used by the industry. And in fact, when it sells to Japan and China, the rare earth from Linus further refine into the form that is uh, usable by various applications, you know, like permanent magnet and so on and so forth. So it is actually, Linus rare earth oxides are not worth that much, partly because uh, the proportion of the valuable rare earth that they have only consists of like 30%. The rest of the 70% are actually the cheap lanthanide, uh, lanthanum and cerium that's only worth $1.70 or so US a kilo. And its production cost is very high, something like $10 a kilo US. So that's showing the financial unviability of the Linus operation. But that's all being masked by Linus. Yeah, in its ongoing spin or public marketing strategy, you know, promoting itself as a major non-Chinese rare supplier. Well, if it's financially unviable, who's supporting it to keep it going? 
the Japanese. Japanese given a generous loan and uh, actually hasn't demanded minus the payback. Mainly because the Japanese had an ongoing conflicting relationship with China and Japan needed liners, not so much for its wearers, but more just to, uh, I guess, you know, offset the power that China exerted, has over Japan from the rare supply. It's really for geopolitical purpose that Japan propping liners up and, uh, and not really for any commercial reason. And we have to remember that Japan is the, the, the country or one of their companies who left the original yes, mess there. That's right. That's right. So the Linus Toxic Legacy is the second one that Japan created for Malaysia. The first one being the Asian Rare Earth plant owned uh, by, mostly by Japan's ships. Yeah, so this is the second legacy, toxic legacy, and it is worse because the amount of radioactive waste it has generated has already exceeded the Bukit Mera quantity by 45 times. And if it is allowed to continue, in the end, there will be 160 times more radioactive waste generated through the Linus plant. So that's why the Malaysians are so upset about this. And that's a petition going around at the moment. And it has 111 NGOs from Malaysia signing onto it and over 5,000 citizens signed up since last night. Isn't the government demanding that Linus show how they're going to deal with this waste? Well, I mean, theoretically, they're doing that. But I think Linus hasn't got a financial or technical capacity to actually do it. Yeah, I mean, Linus is really just a speculative company. It hasn't actually that intention to run this operation for so long. It would, I think its intention was to sell it back in 2010, 2011. But because of the strong opposition from Malaysians, uh, its reputation has been punished. So it has forced itself to get to this stage where there is, you know, it has to continue to operate, but yet it's got this waste problem that's still to be managed. Can you explain what this waste is, where it is, and, and how much there is? Yeah, sure, sure. At the, at the moment, there's something like 600,000 tonnes of uh, radioactive contaminated waste. It has got like, uh, it has got about 2% worth of thorium. So theoretically it's called a thorium waste. And then it's also contained some uranium and toxic heavy metals like nickel, cadmium, lead, chromium, a huge amount of magnesium, and a whole range of other uh, heavy metals, aluminium, um, and, and also copious amount of uh, chemicals. It is gypsum-like substance in fine powder. Yeah, it hasn't got any commercial purpose, and it shouldn't have been kept in isolation for low-level radioactive waste uh, facility. But of course, you know, Malaysia being a wet tropical um, country, 
trying to build a reliable and lasting radioactive dump is just uh, near, like, geotechnically and climatically, it's uh, near impossible and it's very, very costly. Is Quantana a windy place? I'm just thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. So oh, totally. This, so this fine powder can blow mm, away? Of course. I mean, if you can imagine, the, the forest fire in, in Indonesia can actually travel all the way from Sumatra to Kuantan. You can imagine the, the, the force of the wind, particularly in the monsoon period, where you have the northeastern uh, monsoon wind, it will carry Linus particles by and by because it's not covered. On top of that, it's the flooding that happens, you know, at every heavy rainfall period. Yeah, so the leachate, which is the liquid gathering at the bottom of all these waste piles, that is contaminated with all kinds of um, toxic substances, will be overflowing to the surrounding environment. And that's why the groundwater underneath it has already been con- contaminated. Where does the groundwater end up? Um, well, nobody's actually done any decent hydrology. It could well be linked to the water supply for the whole municipality of Quantan, but because of the limited technical knowledge and the capacity to assess and manage or, or monitor, nobody knows what's going on over there. Now, this is an Australian company, as we all know. I just want to read one paragraph that mm-hmm. people are, ask, are asking to compel the Australian Securities and Investment Commission yes. to enforce its ASX corporate governance principles, which require corporations to act ethically and responsibility by compelling Linus to adhere to its licence conditions and undertaking, regardless of any weakness of, a, of law enforcement by the Malaysian government. Yes. What's happening about that? Well, ASIC has been reported, well, there have been numerous complaints made to ASIC, but ASIC is like a paper tiger. <laughs> it hasn't got peace, actually, and it has no intention to prosecute or to delete company that's violated law overseas. I have made a complaint myself to ASIC. And it's replied that, you know, they do not control operations of Australian companies overseas. So it is, uh, it is controversial in that sense that we don't have law binding or binding code of conduct governing Australian corporations when they operate overseas. And that's also one of the reasons why we keep hearing disastrous consequences from Australian operations in especially poor developing countries. What are activists able to do in Malaysia? Oh, they will keep staging protests. Um, I guess the only difference now is the new government has got ministers and member of parliament who are, you know, both championing, who had championed the cause to stop this uh, radioactive waste accumulation before and also people who are more uh, rational but with the Prime Minister Mahathir he's the main culprit he's the one who actually without consulting with his cabinet ministers gone on public to announce that Linus license would be renewed in Tokyo 
and that is waste will be will be spread around to reduce its uh, radioactive concentration. Yeah, I mean, not all cabinet ministers agree with him, but the hierarchy in Malaysia does make it difficult. So now it's it's the it's a it's a context, I guess, between the will of the people, and uh, yeah, and and that of the political leadership. But the longer this goes on, the worse the situation's going to get. Absolutely, as we speak now, Linus is operating 24 hours, seven days a week, to try and process as much of his lanternite concentrate as possible. And that's why in the petition, there's also a call for Australia not to allow Linus to export its lanternite concentrate, which is the the key uh, raw material that has brought in the radioactive material as well as the toxic substances, which I've listed earlier. What happened to the takeover bid by West Farmers for Um, Linus? At the moment, because Linus' share is riding quite high, yeah, the offer price uh, or bid given by West Farmers are way too low. So I'm not sure whether West Farmer is still keen to pursue Linus and or whether or not that's actually going to end up better for Malaysia. In that sense that, you know, West Farmer could walk away and say, well, that was Linus' problem. That was a deal between Malaysia and Linus. They now have a different supply chain arrangement and they have nothing to do with the mess. That's my fear, I guess. Surely the situation, if it gets worse, must become out of the hands of the Malaysian government. Yeah, I think international community can have a say on this as well, especially when Linus is promoted itself to be a raw material supplier for green and low-emission technologies. I mean, for all of us who believe in renewable energy and low-emission technology, surely we do not want to see this kind of unethical and irresponsible supply chain that is being created by Linus in the name of uh, fighting climate change and uh, improving, you know, emission standards around the world and so on and so forth. So that's another anger that the Malaysian can take or this campaign can take place down the track. Just before you go, Leetan, the one yes. MDB scandal, it's now yes. in the courts in many countries yes. and the stepson of Razak has been charged with embezzling millions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, Najib, his wife, his stepson and the fugitive are on the wanted list. Jolo, who is believed to be the mastermind of the scandal, yeah, they're all being prosecuted one by one. It's taking time, as usual. But, um, yeah, but it hasn't actually stopped Najib from uh, speaking out. In fact, he had the cheek to criticise the, the, the ministers and also uh, MPs who used to be in his opposition for tolerating liners until today even though he was responsible for it in the first place. Has any of the money been returned to Malaysia? I think the US, um, the amount that the US uh, government had recovered, don't know whether, I think part of it has been um, returned, but there are still substantial amount that's yet to be recovered. And I'd imagine the legal costs are 
Yes, yeah, of course, they take away, yeah. you know, millions in legal costs as well and uh, all the service charges and so on and so forth. So in the end, you know, Malaysia will lose billions, but it will it would recover some billions as well, but not as much as what is uh, lost originally, yeah. But the, the Najuk fan... Yeah, that's right. It's something like 12 billion US. That's a lot of money, isn't it? That's a huge amount of money for a little country like Malaysia. Yep. And whose money? That was the the public service oh, money. Yeah, that's public money. It's the, well, but what and also what he did was he borrowed heavily uh, in the name of one MDP for investment, and that also went into his uh, private account or through other means. Yeah. Have they been able to stop his his um, accounts? I think they have frozen all of his accounts. Yeah, and that's why, you know, he and his wife continue to scream foul in the media. And they still have a few supporters because they've paid people a lot in the past. Okay, thanks for that. And that was environmental consultant Lee Tan speaking about the the situation in Malaysia with the rare earth processing plant in Kwantan on the eastern coast causing great problems and if nothing's done it will cause many more problems in the near future it's coming up to 22 minutes past five o'clock we appreciate like you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this you know it's very good it keeps a positive mindset in our mind you know and we really appreciate it because of where we can I wanna be a better, better man, yeah, because of how we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. When I first come to the Australia, I was about 10 years ago and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day and they call me Auntie Marlene. So it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like, yeah, they're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Red Alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. 
Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. El Dorado, the story of Scudiers, is the story of a fight of a small community in northern Greece against a multinational-owned gold mine project that threatens their homes and lives. A grassroots movement is fighting against the destruction of the environment caused by the extraction methods and for democratic control of the most crucial basic resources, water, air and land. It shows Greece in the era of social and economic crisis where the rights of communities and the environment collide with big business and profit. This screening will be followed by a performance by Bandidas playing classic Rembetica songs of love and loss, pain and pleasure at Café Gummo, 7-Eleven High Street Thornbury on Saturday the 10th of August at 7.30pm. Entry will be by gold coin donation and all funds will go to 3CR. While conflicts and human rights abuses around the world are at the forefront, it would appear that world leaders close their eyes to the situation in the Philippines. I'm speaking with human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy. I speak to you and other people about the situation in the Philippines and it just seems to be spiralling out of control, or is it already out of control? We're running out of the adjectives, uh, Jan, but uh, it's, uh, from, from our perspective, a completely wild situation with uh, large numbers of people being assassinated because of their role defending their communities, basically. But I think from the Duterte government side, it's, it's well planned and, uh, you know, it's being exercised with some kind of military precision, in fact. So, uh, Yes, it's not as if there's sort of rogue elements around. It's it's really a very big operation. And we're, we're really looking here at the situation in the island of Negros, where I, I'm astounded myself at the, the brutality of what's going on, but it's a, it's a massive repression taking place in the Oriental Negros, in the northern part of the province. So today is uh, August 6th, uh, Hiroshima Day, and uh, on July 25, we, we received reports about 13 people uh, had been killed over just three or four days in uh, different incidents, but uh, all carried out mostly by military and police combined operations, but also some motorcycle riding, you know, un, ununiformed, but, but uh, pretty well normal death squad type operations. So the main victims have been farmers, uh, either agricultural workers uh, working for big landowners or farmer association leaders. Uh, but also another lawyer was, was killed and, and his wife seriously wounded um, on July 24 when they were on their way to the courthouse. So uh, the pattern is there that the organised leaders are being wiped out in large numbers, and this began December 27 last year. So we've, we're seeing a seven-month-long, no, it's an eight-month-long operation uh, in which uh, something like, uh, let me think of the numbers. Uh, I think we're into uh, the, the into the 40s people have been killed 
over 40 people have been killed in this operation in these eight months. Negros, we don't hear of that area very often. No, uh, I think uh, Australians are very poorly informed by our media and, and our government about situations, but uh, Negros is in the central part of the Philippines. It's uh, long been a, a sort of a special case or a particular case because it was the centre of the sugar industry for many, many decades. And uh, the sugar industry in the last 20 years or so has largely collapsed there, so it's much smaller. But the the social structure of the island was one of a very small number of very rich families and uh, a very large number of very poor uh, people basically excluded from land ownership and uh, forced to work in the seasonal uh, dynamics of the sugar industry. So uh, it was really a place of great poverty and uh, great wealth and uh, social conflict was so endemic. It was called uh, a social volcano by church leaders. So uh, that's, that's a sort of nickname for Negros, social volcano, and we're witnessing an eruption now. What employment was there for the people when the sugar industry collapsed? Well, there was nothing. <laughs> people had to move. People had to scrounge. So uh, I would say that with the change in the structure of the industry on the island, the poverty only got worse. So why this focus on getting rid of leaders at the moment? What are the people asking for? Well, the, the main issue... Uh, for a long, long time on Negros has been land reform, that the big haciendas needed to uh, distribute land to people who wouldn't wanted to grow food on it. And um, there's been lots of different ways that the workers have, have struggled to get a bit of land. Uh, I visited Negros myself a couple of times and uh, it was very common for food crops and uh, vegetables to be planted just in the little bit of ground between the edge of the sugar plantation and the roadway. So maybe just a you know, one metre of uh, space, but that would be gardened. But you realise, of course, that's very, very insufficient for people to have a livelihood. So, yeah, the demand for land has been strong. Um, one of the first of these more recent massacres happened last year when nine people, nine farm workers, were planting uh, on uh, a fallow sugar field. That is, the sugar had been harvested. They had negotiated with the landowner to plant corn and other vegetables on the land, and they had been working the land, and, and at night time they were asleep, and... Uh, I'm pretty sure it was an armed, <clears throat> armed security guards arrived with automatic weapons and, and sprayed the whole place with uh, bullets and nine were killed. So, you know, even though they thought that they had made an arrangement with the right people and that everything was uh, agreed, uh, another force on the island decided that no, no such deals would be allowed. That's, that's the sort of thing that people have to live with there. So um, why, you know, you ask why Negros now, uh, I really can't answer the question. I'd have to put myself in the shoes of the military command. But uh, there's uh, a number of 
Oh, let me think. The political dynamic is that President Duterte is struggling to change the entire constitution of the Philippines and uh, he wants uh, a federal structure and there's a very big conflict among the wealthy families about well, what are the boundaries of the different mini-states or sub-states of the federation because whoever gets uh, you know, a big one or a little one would, would have their own little fiefdom and uh, their wealth would depend on how big the territory was. So I think there's a struggle over control of different parts of the country and Mindanao has been the focus for a few years now of this conflict but it's also certainly applying in the central part of the Philippines and also on the main island of Luzon. So I think in the end the situation on Negros is, is partly to do with the struggle of Duterte's group to assert their control and try to force through the Congress um, or a constituent assembly uh, this new plan for a new constitution. And then at the lower level, you know, as I said, this is a long-standing pattern uh, in Negros and other parts of the country, but especially in Negros, that the land pressure is very severe and uh, at a certain point the ruling families crack down and... uh, they wipe out the, uh, what they perceive to be the organised push to change land ownership on the island. Now, in Negros last year, President Duterte declared a state of emergency, which is one, one step short in legal terms of declaring martial law. So martial law has been applied in Mindanao since May 2017 and extended year by year, and uh, it's fully expected that... In Negros and some other parts of central Philippines, there will be a declaration of martial law. And so by creating this picture of mayhem and uh, chaos, the, the government in a way is preparing the ground for that move as well. What's happening on the island of Luzon? There's, there's a, it's a big place, but uh, the province of Bicol or the region of Bicol, which is in the southeast of the island, and it's also a notoriously poor place. Uh, it seems to also be a location for, you know, accelerated uh, assassinations of uh, student leaders, human rights defenders and lawyers as well in these last few months. And uh, the, um, you know, I think that uh, a state of emergency has also been declared in Bicol. So I think we're seeing the same pattern, but not quite as intense as Negros and not quite as intense as as Mindanao, but the same pattern happening in that part of Luzon. Luzon also has got the capital, the national capital region, and uh, that's a huge metropolis. I'm really not sure how many people live there now, but it'd be in the range of 15 million people. So there's there's a bit more care taken in, in Manila, by the government in terms of repression. So uh, the uh, heavy surveillance of leaders, arrests of leaders and that kind of thing uh, on trumped-up charges is is more common in the national capital region than just outright assassinations. But in the end, what, what that leads to is leaders intimidated, leaders having to move house every day, can't sleep in the same place every night and... Uh, and therefore, a greatly, you know, reduced um, 
organising impact unless unless more organisers can be brought in quickly to do jobs to replace those leaders who have been hounded so so much. So um, yeah, I think uh, that's my picture there of uh, of Luzon. There's one particular place where Australia's got a direct interest in a gold mine at Didipio in uh, the northeast of the of the island of Luzon. So this is um, the province of Nueva Vizcaya, and uh, the Oceana Gold Company is operating a gold and mainly gold, but a gold and copper open cut mine. Its actual permit to operate expired on June 30, and the communities mounted a uh, blockade of the mine site from early July. I'm not really sure how it's uh, proceeding at the moment, but the government, the provincial governments uh, close to the mine, uh, are both uh, declared the mine should shut. The national government of Duterte, though, has, has insisted that the mine keep operating. And uh, an interesting feature is that uh, the workforce at the DPO uh, mine have, have been organised for a few years now by the Kilisung Maya Uno Labour Centre. And so the, this is a progressive union uh, centre and uh, it's also supportive of the community's concern over the environmental impact of the mine. So uh, all of these groups are, are working now about the closure of the mine. So again, you know, you'd think there would be an Australian media reporting of this, but uh, it's, it's really under wraps. Would you say that the, that the unrest and uncertainty in the Philippines suits the United States in that area of the world? Well, I think uh, the unrest doesn't suit uh, in, in one way, in, in that uh, the Philippines is a chronic case of uh, you know, economic trouble and uh, the, the social unrest is linked to the, the, the very difficult economic circumstances. But... If, if there was a perception internationally that it was a less troubled place, one uh, view would be that uh, then more international investment would happen, the economy would stabilise a bit and the social strife would reduce, in turn helping to improve the situation further. That's, that's one sort of policy thinking. But uh, I think on the other hand, the United States uh, sees Philippines more in geopolitical terms than in economic terms, although there's plenty of U.S. investment there. And this is about the China-U.S. tension. So the Philippines is more and more important as a location for U.S. military assets in a steady build-up, I think people can perceive, focused on the South China Sea. So uh, the... U.S. government would like to be assured that the government in, in Manila is always going to be supportive of their geopolitical interests, no matter what else is happening on the island. And uh, the, the sort of community-level grassroots uh, movements are solidly for an independent, uh, democratic Philippines with a foreign policy independent of the U.S. military alliance. So I think the U.S. Uh, interests would be pretty strongly in favour of the repression that we, we discussed at the start of this interview. That is, if there's going to be uh, a stronger or growing movement in, in the Philippines, which would also embrace the idea that the US should, should get its military out of the country, well, the US would want to repress that movement. 
Just how significant are the military assets and the economic assets of the US in the Philippines at the moment? Well, I'm not really sure of uh, the really fine detail, but uh, there's always now about 6,000 US Marines rotating through the Philippines. They have an annual exercise there called Balikatan, which Australia now participates in, which is a, it's a larger thing involving about 30,000 soldiers. And uh, the US also has access to every... Filipino military base in the country that is any airfield, port or uh, army camp the US has uh, got a right to also use it so there's, there's inside the um, Philippines military base say in Zamboanga city in, in uh, Mindanao there's a US military base in there and there's some indications that there's an Australian military base inside the US one so it's hard to know. It's very secretive when you when you think about how how would anyone really be able to even uh, look at the scale of uh, U.S. military when they're inside a, a, an already secure Filipino military base. But uh, there's those things: six thousand, the Balikatan, the uh, access to the airfields, and now at Subic Bay, which was a former major U.S. naval base. The U.S. Navy is also bringing ships in there regularly, including nuclear-armed ships, nuclear submarines and uh, um, large surface vessels. So the, this is a, a base which uh, directly stands off the South China Sea. So uh, I think, you know, it's very, very important to the U.S. There was that discussion with uh, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo and the Defence Secretary Asper on the weekend here in Australia, which brought up that sudden uh, mention of uh, stationing intermediate-range missiles in the Asia-Pacific, well, it's pretty obvious that the Philippines is, is a candidate for that. Is it public knowledge of what Australian troops are doing in the Philippines? Only the fact that Australian troops have now finished a program of training the Philippine Army in urban warfare. So from about October... 2018 to December, sorry, October 2017 to December 2018, there was at least 80 Australian troops doing that training and there was an embedded journalist towards the end and um, stories in the Sydney Morning Herald and so forth. That's the only, the only real reports we've had. But uh, since uh, the time of uh, President Bush, so around 2004, seems there's been an Australian SAS uh, fast boats unit somewhere in uh, Zamboanga or you know south west Mindanao and they're probably still there just thinking to me that urban warfare means going in and killing the local people surely yeah urban warfare means massive civilian casualties like what happened in Marawi city so uh you know, there's a huge concentration of the Philippines Army in Mindanao. I think it's something like 75% of all combat units are in Mindanao. So people in Mindanao are, you know, very apprehensive and um, they're worried that, uh, okay, Marawi City was destroyed in 2017. Uh, which one is next? And uh, I'm afraid, you know, Australian troops will have helped you know, make the next one even more, you know, you know, shocking. 
So they say Cotabato City, for instance. That's the next one. People say things like that in Mindanao. Why would that one be picked out? I'm pretty sure it's because that's where most of the Philippine, you know, that's the most concentrated area of Philippine army units in Mindanao. Is it a fact with a big army like there would be in the Philippines that they send troops that don't belong to that place into a place to control the people? Yes, sure. Most of the troops who are in Mindanao don't come from Mindanao. They come from Luzon or from the central part of the country. And they do that with other areas as well? Uh, well, I think if you're in Luzon, it could well be that um, you know some of the some of the soldiers are locals. But as far as I can tell, you know the, the different units are moved around the country every few years. So there is you know always um, military who aren't really uh, loyal to any local community. Well, despite all the repression and the human rights abuses, the the people aren't giving up. They're they're fighting back. Yes, I, I think uh, because they've lived through the Marcos period, which was a, a, like a long nightmare for the country, and it's in living memory for millions and millions of people today, the resilience is there. You know, people know that it's actually a real dead end to go down the path of dictatorship. And so uh, the... The reaction of people uh, in the trade unions, in these farmer organisations and among the lawyers is only to, you know, dig in to find ways, ever new ways to assert their rights to protest and uh, people are absolutely convinced that they, they have to keep doing that, that uh, there's no, uh, no real alternative. They have this... Um, chant or slogan you know from the marcos time it's uh, it means struggle have no fear that's that's the attitude and it's very difficult for outsiders now who want to support the people to actually do that you can endure it outside the country yes i um, uh, i was at this conference in in hong kong in uh, the end of june and uh, this was about the human rights situation in the Philippines because uh, you know, a significant number of uh, people from around the world who have long experience visiting the Philippines are now blocked from, from travelling there. That includes me and uh, three or four other Australians. So you know, we're forced to you know, do, do things that way. But see, that's, that's just the uh, resilient response. And just because we couldn't go to the Philippines, well, the Filipinos came to Hong Kong. You know, so, you know, we, we're doing our best to organise uh, more thoroughly and to reach out you know, with uh, more energy into the international community to, to bring this situation to, to the attention of the world. And uh, I think we, we can mark a, a significant step forward in uh, June and July because uh, in June the International Labour Organisation accepted that the repression of unions in the Philippines was so severe that they should send a high-level mission to investigate. And uh, in July, the UN, United Nations Human Rights Council, voted, after quite a struggle, voted to uh, send a special investigation to the Philippines with a Michelle Bachelet to report back to the UN early next year. So... uh, 
Duterte, President Duterte, denounced both decisions and uh, refused to allow anyone to, to travel to do the investigation. But we, uh, you know, we'll find ways to uh, facilitate those investigations and uh, increase the pressure on the, on the Philippine government to open the door. And uh, the trade union movement internationally is gearing up for that. And, uh, and I think uh, through the diplomatic uh, channels we, we are exploring now, we will find ways to put more pressure on for the Human Rights Council investigation to take place. And as well as that, behind, you know, going on quietly, I presume, the International Criminal Court is assessing whether to lay charges against the Duterte himself because of the massive numbers of people killed in the war on drugs, which we think is now about 30,000 people in the last three years. Surely there must be penalties in the international arena for a regime that refuses to allow international fact-finding groups into their country. Well, it's, there's no uh, real law, but of course you can see that when... When people get uh, motivated enough, then sanctions of some sort do apply. So uh, in the presidency of Gloria Arroyo, for instance, several Scandinavian countries refused to meet with her when she travelled to Europe. So she was, you know, publicly embarrassed. That seems pretty mild, but, but once that happened, things changed a bit in, uh, in the Philippines back in 2009. So that's even a mild thing like that can happen, refusing to meet the foreign minister. But I think a more, more significant pressure point supply from the US and Australia, Canada, Israel even. But, but especially Australia can uh, reduce, trim back or even stop uh, the military support which it, it provides to this, this regime. It's obvious, it's obvious that Australia's military aid is making us complicit in, in quite a lot of murder. So it should be stopped completely, but our government's got plenty of options to scale it back. How much does the Philippines government depend on support from overseas, apart from the US? Australia is the second most important for military aid but I'm after, think, after the US. I'm thinking about economic, economic aid or economic... Well, I mean, investment from other countries that could... Well, that could um, the countries that could pull their resources out or do something? Yeah. Well, it's it's very dependent on that because uh, the economic plan is basically to have a low cost uh, production base in the Philippines for export processing <laughs> zones, and therefore, you know, low, very low wages, and uh, foreign investors to use the export processing zones to export cheap goods back to the rich economies in North America and Europe, places like Australia. And uh, so they are sensitive to falling off of, of foreign investment. But uh, given what's happened in the last 25 years with China's development, countries like the Philippines have struggled to attract the same levels of investment that they did before. So, yes, they, they are, they're subject to you know, uh, pressure when global companies decide that for one reason or another, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, not feasible to, to invest in the Philippines. And this could be for reputational reasons as well as for production reasons. So, um, yeah, I think that by bringing to the public attention how severe the situation is uh, in the Philippines, we, we can 
makes some impact, I, I think, on the on the broad assessments of global companies. But you know, in my in my experience, it takes a lot a lot to get them to shift, and governments have to lead the way. Okay, that's all I've got. Are you happy to leave it there? Yeah, it's good. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, Peter. And that's Peter Murphy, trade union and human rights activist from Sydney, one of the banned people to go to the Philippines because of his human rights and trade union activism. We can't have anyone coming in or talking about things that the government doesn't like, even though it's supposed to be a democracy. One more message before I go. This is the do on Saturday night. I think it'd be a good place to go and listen to and watch a pretty good film. El Dorado, the story of Scudiez, is the story of a fight of a small community in northern Greece against a multinational-owned gold mine project that threatens their homes and lives. A grassroots movement is fighting against the destruction of the environment caused by the extraction methods and for democratic control of the most crucial basic resources, water, air and land. It shows Greece in the era of social and economic crisis where the rights of communities and the environment collide with big business and profit. This screening will be followed by a performance by Bandidas playing classic Rembetica songs of love and loss, pain and pleasure at Café Gummo, 7-Eleven High Street Thornbury on Saturday the 10th of August at 7.30pm. Entry will be by gold coin donation and all funds will go to 3CR. that is all I have for this week but I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock but do stay tuned for Done By Law bye for now